Welcome back to the Only You Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for following me, and thank you for sharing me. It's the month of June, which I'm doing William James as our author this month. Last month, I did Mark Twain. The month before that, I did Leo Tolstoy. Some very wonderful and amazing authors and writers of the time of their times. Um, it's Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, and I wanted to share a joke with you guys. Does anyone out there know the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Anybody? Punchline? Does anybody out there know the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? <laughs> funny, but not funny. <laughs> um, it, uh, Alzheimer's is a terrible situation for people to go through. And usually at the end of um, Alzheimer's, people don't die from Alzheimer's. They actually die from not being able to swallow. And that's a horrible way to go. It's sad. That's why I wanted to share with you a few things about um, Alzheimer's today, which I have in my previous podcast. But this is some research findings that was posted May 18th of 2023. 40 hertz of vibration reduce Alzheimer's pathology symptoms in mice models. Tactical stimulation improved motor performance, reduced... um, phosphorylated TAO preserved neurons and synopsis and reduced DNA damage a new study shows evidence that non-invasive sensory stimulation of 40 hertz gamma frequency brain rhythms can reduce Alzheimer's disease pathology and symptoms and I wanted to stop right there and tell you guys that there's actually a way that each and every one of you could meditate without you know focusing so much on your breathing but it's good to focus on your breathing though and it's good to focus on your breathing and you know fight or flight situations as well i wanted to share with you that you know our bodies have a way that they can go into meditation meditative states without um focusing without you know, yoga and Tai Chi or whatever it is that you do. But each and every one of us, we have a left side of our brain and a right side of our brain. Um, the left side is creative and intuitive and the right side is, um, more formal and very, uh, they're more analytical is the right side, honestly. So there's a meditation music out there and you can look it up, that uses beta, gamma waves, and it's hertz, which is, which is a frequency. And I use frequency doing automation and PLC adjustments for industrial rise, uh, industrialized robots. And we use low voltage frequencies to, you know, trigger a sensor to see something to make a robot shift to the left or the right to grab something or to move something out of the way or whatever. You know, it could be a gate. It could be a uh, a moving arm back and forth or a dump cylinder that dumps, you know, product that just passed through a metal detector. So it could be food, you know, it passed through a metal detector and then goes to a dump gate and that uses, um, you know, hertz which is a type of frequency or low voltage electricity. And um, it's called Holyosync. Look it up on YouTube. H-O-L-O-S-Y-N-C. Holyosync. And what Holyosync does is it actually, once you listen to it and you lay there or you sit there in your chair or whatever, you close your eyes, it actually forces your brain to go into a meditative state within um, five to ten minutes of listening and, you know, focusing just on listening to the music and the vibrations of the frequency that's entering your ears. The MIT group is not the first to show that gamma frequency tactile stimulation can affect brain activity and improve motor function, but they are the first to show that the stimulation can also reduce levels of the hallmark Alzheimer's protein, plasphalor. Sorry, it's a hard word, you guys. It's phosphorylated TAO. And that's P H O S P H O R Y L A T E D 
space, and then T-A-U. Keep neurons from dying or losing their synopsis circuit connection and reduce natural DNA damage, which that's important because all of us actually go through um, DNA restructuring all the time. Anytime that you come into any kind of situation, actually every day, your neuroplasticity in your brain changes, so therefore it changes your DNA slowly over time. This work demonstrates a third sensory modality that we can use to increase gamma power in the brain. And that is said by the doctor that was, you know, being interviewed in this study. <laughs> um, but the Power Institute for Learning and Memory and Aging Brain Intuitive at, at MIT, the professor in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science, says, We are very excited to see that 40 hertz tactile stimulation benefits motor abilities, which has not been shown with the other modalities, which I'm sure that means models that they have um, invented. It would be interesting to see if tactical stimulation can benefit human subjects with impairment in motor functions. And I think that would be awesome, you know, and thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And today we're doing author William James, the month of June. And I was telling you about that study because this is Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month and I think everybody should know about frontal lobe dysplasia and all the other different types of, you know, Parkinson's, uh, Lewy body disease, every, all those different types of things that can affect your loved one's mind. I think everybody should learn about them and kind of know the telltale signs that, you know, things ain't right and there are things that we can do to help those around us, if not maybe ourselves in time. And if we continue to learn, we'll continue to grow and we can continue to help those around us and ourselves at the same time. I'm excited to share with you today the principles of psychology, which William James published this writing in 1890. It was one of his better writings that actually gained world recognition by some of the greatest psychologists ever that their theories have been twisted and reworded and conformed and little bits here and there have been spread out over time but are actually based in the original thinker's theory which is Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung in Vienna and at the time of 1890, when this book was published, they thought that this writing was one of the best of its kind and that they, they shared it with many of their students. And it's called The Principles of Psychology. But I did want to say this in this podcast. You know, I don't know if you understand what principles are, but in a lot of my readings of these psychological books many of them talk about principles and I think that a lot of people struggle in life because they don't have firm principles and they don't grasp the meaning behind um, certain words and they don't understand that certain words are very powerful and principles is a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as a foundation for a system or beliefs or behaviors for a chain of reasoning. And if you can apply these or that um, definition to your life or apply these principles from William James's The Principles of Psychology to your own life, you will see a transformation because I have learned over time and being patient with myself and trying to be understanding that I can't do everything. And I know that, but I want to push myself to think and believe that at least I tried to do what I thought or believed I couldn't do. And I think once you push yourself to a certain point that your principles will shine through and you will have a better understanding of the psychology you're going through. And I do think that William James is a great writer, and that's why I wanted to share with you um, the um, principles of psychology today. 
the scope of psychology. Psychology is the science of mental life, both of its phenomena and of their conditions. The phenomena are such things as we call feelings, desires, cognitions, reasonings, decisions, and the like. And superficially considered, their variety and complexity is such as to leave a chaotic impression on the observer. The most natural and subsequently the earliest way of unifying the material was first to classify it as well as might be, and secondly, to affiliate the diverse mental modes thus found upon a simple entity, the personal soul of which they are taken to be so many manifestations. Now, for the instant, the soul manifests its faculty of memory, now of reasoning, now of voltation, or again, its imagination, or its appetite. This is the orthodox spiritualistic theory of scholasticism and of common sense. And for those that don't know what scholasticism is, it's actually a method of learning more than a philosophy or a theology since it places a strong emphasis on dialectical reasoning to extend knowledge by interference and to resolve. And I thought that was kind of important to add just for the fact that not a lot of people understand some of these writers' words because nobody really honestly uses them anymore. Or And if they do, it's in colleges and classrooms. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And this is William James um, that we're doing today, The Principles of Psychology. Another and a less obvious way of unifying the chaos is to serve common elements and the divers mental facts rather than a common agent behind them and to explain them constructively by the various forms of arrangements of these elements as one explains houses by stones and bricks the associationists schools of herbert in germany and of Hume and Mills and Bain and Britain have thus constructed a psychology without a soul by taking discrete ideas, faint or vivid, and showing how, by their coercions, repulsions, and forms of succession, such things as reminiscence, perceptions, emotions, violations, passions, theories, and all other furnishings of an individual's mind may be endangered. excuse me, engendered and engendered is to cause to exit or to develop. That was a word that I have never heard before, but I thought I better tell you about it because if I don't know, then how would you know? (laughs) The very self or ego of the individual comes in this way to be viewed no longer as the pre-existing source of the representations, but rather as their last and most complicated fruit. Now, if we strive rigorously to simply, excuse me, to simplify the phenomena in either of these ways, we soon become aware of inadequacies in our method. Any particular cognition, for example, or recollection is accounted for on the soul theory by being referred to the spiritual faculties of cognition or of memory. These faculties themselves are thought of as absolute properties of the soul. That is, to take the case of memory, no reason is given why we should remember a fact as it happened, except that so to remember it constitutes the essence of our recollective power. And many of us already know that, right? I would hope we do, because we all understand the way our brains work to some extent. We may, as spiritualists, try to explain our memory's failures, 
and blunders by secondary cause, but its successes can invoke no factors save the existence of certain objective things to be remembered on the one hand and our faculty of memory on the other. When, for instance, I recall my graduation day and drag all its incidents and emotions up from death's dateless night, no mechanical cause can explain the process, nor can any analysis reduce it to lower terms or make its nature seem other than an ultimate datum. I wanted to tell you what datum is, you guys, just so you know. Horizontal datums measure positions on the surface of... Okay, so it's a measuring positions, datum, which whether it be rebel or not, at its mysteriousness, must simply be taken for granted if we are to psychoanalyze at all. However, the associ associationists may represent the present ideas as thronging and arranging themselves. Still, the spiritualists insist... He has in the end to admit that something, be it brain, be it ideas, be it association, knows past time as past and fills it out with this or that event. And when the spiritualist calls memory an irreducible faculty, he says no more than this admission of the associationist already grants. And yet the admission is far from being a satisfactory simplification of the concrete facts. For why should this absolute God-given faculty retain so much better the events of yesterday than those of last year and those of all, those of an hour ago? Why again in old age should it grasp of childhood's events seem firmest? Why should illness and exhaustion and feeble it, and that's another word that you guys need to know about is enfeeble, E-N-F-E-E-B-L-E, -E -E, to make feeble or deprive of strength. So, with that said, I lost my place now, everybody, because I wanted to tell you what that word meant. <laughs> Terrible reader. I'm sorry. Um, why should illness and exhaustion enfeeble it? Why should repeating and experience strengthen our recollection of it? Why should drugs, fevers, asphyxia, and excitement make things long since forgotten? Or resuscitate things long since forgotten? If we content ourselves with merely affirming that the faculty of memory is so peculiarly constituted by nature as to exhibit just these oddities, we seem little the better for having invoked it, for our explanation becomes as complicated as that of the crude facts with which we started. Moreover, there is something grotesque and irrational in the supposition that the soul is equipped with elementary powers of such an ingenuously intricate sort and i think that stuff stems from like long ago cultures of you know different cultures worshiping different things and then everybody kind of knowing about those culture you know those cultures worshiping idols or whatever they were doing but i think that that's how we you know get to that point of moreover there is something grotesque and irrational in the supposition that the soul is equipped with elementary powers of such an ingeniously intricate sort and i think a lot of us think that about you know our souls why should our memory cling more easily to the near than the remote because i think it's we as humans we um familiarity is why that is in my eyes why should it lose its grasp of proper sooner than abstract names such peculiarities seem quite uh fantastic and might for aught we can see a lot from there be the precise oppo opposites of what they are. Evidently, then, the faculty does not exist absolutely, but works under conditions. And the quest of the conditions becomes the, psycho the psychologist's most interesting task. 
And I mean, there are wonderful, amazing psychologists out there who do really tear apart somebody's brain. And if not give them, you know, coping mechanisms and skills that they didn't have before, but they also change, psychologists change the DNA of your brain completely because once you start understanding how the brain works and the different decisions and the facades that aren't really real and how our mind can make the most unimaginable things real to us, and once we learn how to, you know, use the principles of psychology we overcome those things with great feats as though there's nothing that can stop us and that we are enough for ourselves and that no one's ever going to rescue us but us. And once we learn that, the psychology and the principles will come together, you know, eat more easily than they would if we just kept falling through life and just surviving. Because a lot of us are just surviving. They, you know, it's... We're not thriving, we're surviving, and it sucks, and we don't even know it. However firmly he may hold to the soul and her remembering faculty, he must acknowledge that she never exerts the latter without a cue, and that something must always proceed and remind us of whatever we are to recollect. An idea, says the associationist, an idea associated with the remembered thing, and this explains also why things repeatedly meet with our more easily and are more easily recollected and this part right here reminds me of um eye movement desensitization uh recollective therapy and i actually have done that theory um it's a emdr and the guy I, i thought it was silly at first but once his finger, like he takes two fingers in EMDR sessions and he tells you in the beginning, like, you know, think about the most upsetting things that are going on right now. Think about the things that you bring up the most. What is it that your mind is suffering from? And he's like, once you're thinking about those things, those most hurtful things that you're dealing with at this moment, he's like, think those things through, but do me a favor. When I move my fingers back and forth, and he was moving his fingers probably like, you know, probably a foot, back and forth a foot, and he would and he would ask me like, "How are you feeling right now about those really traumatic emotional feelings that you've been going through?" and and he said, "Are you?" And he's moving his fingers back and forth as he's saying, "Are you visiting those feelings right now? How do you feel about those feelings?" And I'm. And I would be like, oh, I'm having excruciating pains. I all, so all I'm thinking about is, you know, this person dying, or which at the time somebody had died, and it really. And I had been going through this for like thirty some years of, um, you know, revisiting those emotions every day, not really realizing it because subconsciously they were there. I just didn't know why they were there. And he called his fingers an eraser, and he's like, watch my fingers as they. Erase those feelings, emotions, those mountains that you've created around that situation that aren't real. He's let's let, let's knock all those unreal um, thoughts and feelings away from that. And you guys, I came home and tried this stuff in the mirror, and I've been doing it since. It's EMDR therapy, and I'm telling you, I can, you can even do it to yourself. And it's your fingers work as an eraser. It's something about your brain actually being a processing unit. Um, like, you know, RAM, random access memory. And I've read about that recently too. And it, it's unbelievable, but I'm telling you, and if you're suffering from any kind of, um, you know, any kind of disorders on the spectrum of, you know, ADHD, ADD, ODD, autism, any of those things, try to do EMDR sometime or go see somebody and have them do it to you and learn about it and train yourself, get a book. You can find them online. Um, and I just wanted to share that with you because it had to do with this little part right here, but see, this book was written in 1890 and they weren't aware of, you know, uh, ID sensitization movement, rapid therapy. I think that's what it, I can't remember the exact name of it. It's something like that. You guys, I ain't a professional, but you know, I ain't a professional psychologist, but I love to learn about the brain. I think it's 
fascinating and I hope that you do too and that's why you're listening and thank you for listening I appreciate you guys for following and in general the peer association as the count of our mental life is almost as bewildering as the pure spiritualist this multitude of idea existing absolutely yet clinging together and weaving an en- endless carpet of themselves like dominoes and ceaseless change or the bits of glass in a kaleidoscope whence do they get their fantastic laws of clinging and why do they cling and just the shapes they do and that's a question mark there for this the associationist must introduce the order of experience in the outer world. The dance of the ideas is a copy, somewhat mutilated and altered, of the order of phenomena. By the slightest reflection shows the phenomena have absolutely no power to influence our ideas under excuse me, until they have first impressed our senses and our brain. The bare existence of a past fact is no ground for our remembering it unless we have seen it or somehow undergone it we shall never know of its having been you know it's like the saying says if a tree falls in the forest does it make a noise think about it of course it does <laughs> the expedience of the body are thus one of the conditions of the faculty of memory being what it is and a very small amount of reflection on facts shows that one part of the body namely the brain is the part whose experiences are directly concerned if the nervous communication be cut off between the brain and other parts the experiences of those other parts are non-existent for the mind the eye is blind and the ear deaf the hand insensible and motionless and conversely if the brain be injured consciousness is abolished or altered even though every other organ in the body be ready to play its normal part a blow on the head a sudden subtraction of blood the pressure of an hemorrhage may have the first effect whilst a very few ounces of alcohol or grain of opium or hashish or a whiff of chloroform or nitrous oxide gas are sure to have the second the delirium of fever the altered self of insanity and if you don't know the definition of insanity it is repeating the same thing over and over and over expecting different results are all due to foreign matters circulating through the brain or to the pathological changes in the organ substance. The fact that the brain is the one immediate bodily condition of the mental operation is indeed so universally admitted nowadays that I need spend no more time in illustration, but will simply postulate it on pass on. The whole remainder of the book will be more or less of a proof that postulates what was correct. Bodily experiences, therefore, and more practically, excuse me, more particularly brain experiences, must take a place amongst those conditions of the mental life of which psychology need take account. The spiritualist and the associationist must both be cerebralists to the extent at least of admitting that certain particularities in the way of working of their own favorite principles are explicable only by the fact that the brain laws are a co-determinant of the result. Our first conclusion, then, is that a certain amount of brain physiology must be presupposed or in- introduced and concluded in psychology. And still another way, the psychologist is forced to be something of a nerve physiologist. Mental phenomena are not only conditioned a parte ente 
by bodily process. Parte ante um, literally means the part before. And I thought that that was important because, well, it's because that's a, uh, a, a French word, by bodily processes, but they lead to them a part post, parte post, that they lead to acts is, of course, the most familiar of truths. But I do not merely mean acts in the sense of voluntary and deliberate muscular performances. And I think that's important for doctors to know that stuff if they're studying something because, I mean, how would they ever have learned about neuroplasticity and neural pathways and DNA and how, you know, neuroplasticity and DNA go hand in hand. They play roles. They have coding and different types of molecular um, cilia on the outside of them that um, actually you know, work simultaneously with one another. And it's amazing. These, our bodies are amazing. You know, there, there are things out there called, um, Oh, I forgot the name of it, but it's like the, the fibers in your cells that reach out and grab nutrients. I was learning about it the other day and I thought, wow, the human body is just unbelievable. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, that actually chiropractors learn more about the different vitamins and nutrients your body needs for certain muscles, bones, ligaments, and apparatuses in the human body to work. They actually know all those different types of vitamins and supplements that help your body actually heal. And a lot of people go to the doctor for that, but the doctor's there to use, you know, science and medication that they don't really care about nutrition, and they should. And I thought I would share that with you right now, too, because a lot of people don't know that chiropractors hold that much knowledge. And all you got to do is be like, you know, do you, could you refer me to a nutritionist or do you know anything about nutrition? And you'd be surprised at what your chiropractor would know. I use um, a chiropractor here uh, in Illinois called Back to Health, and they offer so many different things for your body that's unbelievable for the spine, for your muscles, for your joints. It's wild. But back to the principles of psychology by William James. And thank you guys for listening. I do appreciate Mental states occasion also change in the caliber of blood vessels or alterations in the heartbeats or processes more subtile still in glands and vice versa. These are taken into account as well as acts which follow at some remote period because the mental state was once there. It will be safe to lay down the general law that no mental modification ever occurs which is not accompanied or followed by a bodily change. The ideas and feelings, etc., which these present printed characters excite in the reader's mind, not only occasion movements of the eyes and nascent movements of articulation in him, but will someday make him speak or take sides in a discussion or give advice or choose a book to read differently from what would have been the case that they never impressed his retina. Our psychology must therefore take account not only of the conditions ascendant to mental states, but of resultant consequences as well. But actions originally prompted by conscious intelligence may grow so automatic by dent or of habit as to be apparently unconsciously performed, standing, walking, buttoning and unbuttoning, piano playing, talking, playing guitar, even saying one's prayers may be done when the mind is absorbed in other things. The performance of animal instinct seem 
semi-automatic and the reflex acts of self-preservation certainly are so, yet they resemble intelligent acts in bringing about the same ends at which the animal's consciousness on other occasions deliberately aims. Shall the study of such machine-like yet purposive, that's a word that you don't see every day, purposive, I thought that was kind of interesting, right? Acts these be included in psychology. The boundary line of the mental is certainly vague. It is better not to be pandantic, but to let the science be as vague as its subject and include such phenomena as these, if by so, do we, excuse me, doing we can throw any light on the main business in hand. It will ere long be seen, I trust, that we can and that we gain much more of a broad than by a narrow conception of our subject. At a certain stage in the development of every science, a degree of vagueness is what best consists with fertility. On the whole, few recent formulas have done more real service of a rough sort in psychology than the Spencerian. Spencerian. One that... Excuse me, you guys. I have to know what this is. A Spencerian script is a script style based on copperplate script that was used in the United States from approximately 1850 to 1925. Huh, that's pretty interesting. One, that the essence of mental life and of bodily life are one, namely, the adjustment of inner to outer relations. Such a formula is vagueness incarnate, but because it takes into account the fact that minds inhibit environments which act on them and on which they in turn react because, in short, it takes mind and the mindness of all of its concrete relations. It is, immen- excuse me, it is immensely more fu- futile than the old-fashioned rational psychology, which treated the soul as a detached existent, which is crazy, I think. I mean, how could your soul be detached from your body? Which, I mean, I think as humans, it feels like, you know, there's like some kind of little spirit bouncing around inside of us, kind of like that. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, that's my my thought sometimes. What about you guys? Do you ever feel like that? Um, hopefully, I, hopefully you're enjoying this book. I'm enjoying it. Can we state more distinctly still the manner in which the mental... Life seemed to intervene between impressions made from without upon the body and reactions of the body upon the outer world again. Let us look at a few facts. If some iron fillings be sprinkled on a table and a magnet brought near them, they will fly through the air for a certain distance and stick itself to the surface of the magnet. A savage seeing the phenomenon explains it as the result of an attraction or love between the magnet and the filings. But let a card cover the poles of the magnet and the filings will press forever against its surface without its ever occurring to them to pass around its sides and thus come into more direct contact with the object of their love. Blow bubbles through a tube into the bottom of a pail of water they will rise to the surface and mingle with the air. Their attraction may again be poetically interpreted as due to a longing to recombine with the mother atmosphere above the surface, but if you invert a jar full of water over the pail, they will rise and remain lodged beneath its bottom, shut it, excuse me, shut in from the outer air, although a slight Deflection from their course at the outset or a redescendant toward the rim of the jar when they found their upward course impeded would easily have set them free. 
if now we pass from such actions as these to those of living things, we notice a striking difference. Romeo wants Juliet as the filings want the magnet. And if no obstacle intervenes, he moves towards her by as straight a line as they are. But Romeo and Juliet, if a wall be built between them, do not remain idiotically pressed their faces against it opposite side like the magnet and the filings with the card. Romeo soon finds a circuitous way by scaling the wall or otherwise by touching Juliet's lips directly. With the filings, the path is fixed. Whether it reaches the end depends on accidents. Whether the lover, it is the end which is fixed. The path may be modified indefinitely. Suppose a living frog in the position in which we place our bubbles of air, namely at the bottom of a jar of water. The want of breath will soon make him also long to rejoin Mother Atmosphere, and he will take the shortest path to his end by swimming straight upwards. But if a jar full of water be inverted over him, he will not like the bubbles perpetually press his nose against its unyielding roof, but will restlessly explore the neighborhood until by redescending again, he has discovered a path around its brim to the goal of his desires. Again, the fixed end, the varying means. Such contrasts between living and intimate performances end by leading men to deny that in the physical world, final purposes exist at all. Loves and desires are today no longer imputed to particles of iron or of air. No one supposes now that the end of any activity which they may display is an ideal purpose presiding over the activity from its outset and soliciting or drawing it into being a sort of vice effronté. The end, on the contrary, is deemed, I want to tell you what fronte is, forehead in French. The end, on the contrary, is deemed a mere passive result, pushed into being a turgo, which turgo means back in French. Having had, so to speak, no voice in its own production, alter the pre-existing conditions, and with inorganic materials, you bring forth each time a different apparent end. But, with intelligent agents, altering the conditions changes the activity displayed, but not the end reached. For here, the idea of the yet unrealized end cooperates with the conditions to determine what activities shall be. And thank you guys for listening. This is the Only You podcast. Hopefully you have enjoyed this read. I found it to be very interesting. Um, William James is a very talented writer. Um, In this book on chapter two, he talks about the functions of the brain. If I begin chopping the foot of a tree, its branches are unmoved by my act. Its leaves murmur as peacefully as ever in the wind. If on the contrary, I do violence to the foot of a fellow man, the rest of his body instantly responds to the aggression by movements of alarm or defense. The reasons of this difference is that the man has a nervous system whilst the tree has none. And the function of the nervous system is to bring each part into harmonious cooperation with each other. The inherent nerves, when excited by some physical irritant, be this as gross in its mode of operation as a chopping axe or as subtile as the waves of light conveys the excitement of the nervous centers, the the commotion set up in the centers does not stop there but discharges itself if at all strong through the afferent nerves into muscles and glands exciting movements of the limbs and versera or acts of secretion which vary with the animal 
and with the irritant applied. These acts of response have usually the common character of being of service. They ward off the noxious stimulus and support of the beneficial one, whilst if in itself indifferent, the stimulus be a sign of some distant circumstance of practical importance. The animal's act are addressed to this circumstance so as to avoid its perils or secure its benefits, as the case may be. To take a common example, if I hear the conductor calling all aboard as I enter the depot, my heart first stops, then palpitates, and my legs respond to the airwaves falling on my quickened footsteps, their movements. If I stumble as I run, the sensation of falling provokes a movement of the hands towards the direction of the fall, the effect of which is to shield the body from too sudden a shock. If a cinder enter my eye, its lids close forcibly, and a copious flow of tears tends to wash out, because actually the eyes and the mouth are the most rapidly healing of the human body. These three responses to a sensational stimulus differ, however, in many respects. The closure of the eye are quite involuntary, and so is the dis disturbance of the heart, such involuntary responses we know as reflex acts. The motion of the arms to break the shock of the fall may also be called reflex, since it occurred too quickly to be deliberately intended, whether it be instinctive or whether it result from the pedestrian education of childhood may be doubtful. It is at any rate less automatic than the previous acts, for a man might be conscious effort learn to perform it more skillfully or even to suppress it altogether. Actions of this kind in which instinct and volition enter upon equal terms have been called semi-reflex. The act of running toward the train, on the other hand, has no instinctive element about it. It is purely the result of education and is preceded by a consciousness of the purpose to be attained and a distinct mandate of the will. It is a voluntary act, thus the animal's reflex and voluntary performance shade into each other, gradually being connected by acts which may often automatically be, may also be modified by conscious intelligence. An outside observer, unable to perceive the unaccompanying consciousness, might be wholly at a loss to discriminate between the automatic acts of those which volation escorted, but if the criterion of mind's existence be the choice of the proper means for the attainment of the supposed end, all the acts seem to be inspired by intelligence, for appropriateness characterized them all alike. This fact now has led to quite opposite theories about the relation to consciousness of the nervous functions. Some authors find that the higher voluntary ones seem to require the guidance of feeling concluded that over the lowest reflexes some such feeling also presides, though it may be a feeling of which we remain unconscious. Other findings that reflex and semi-automatic acts may notwithstanding their appropriateness, take place and unconsciousness apparently complete, fly to the opposite extreme and maintain that the appropriateness, even the voluntary actions, owes nothing to the facts that the consciousness attends them. They are, according to these writings, excuse me, to these writers, results of psychological mechanisms, pure and simple. In a near chapter... We shall return to this controversy again. Let us now look a little more closely at the brain and at the ways in which its states may be supposed to condition those of the mind. The frog's nervous center. Both the minute anatomy and the detailed physiology of the brain are achievements of the present generation, or rather we may say beginning with minert. And I have to tell you who Minert is. His name is Theodore Minert, and he was a neuropathologist and an anatomist. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast of the past 20 years. Many points are still obscure and subject to controversy, but a general way of conceiving the organ has been reached 
on all hands, which in its main feature seems not unlikely to stand on, which even gives a most plausible scheme of the way in which cerebral and mental operations go hand in hand. The best way to enter the subject will be to take a lower creature like a frog and study by the the vissectional method the functions of the different nervous center. The frog's nervous center are figured in the accompanying diagram, which needs no further explanation. I will proceed to state what happens when various amounts of the anterior parts are removed. In different frogs, in the way in which an ordinary student removes them, that is, with no extreme precautions, as to purity of the operation, we shall in this way reach a very simple conception of the functions of the various centers involving the strongest possible contrast between the cerebral hemispheres and the lower lobes. This sharp conception will have detected, excuse me, did it, Didactic. Didactic is intended primarily to teach rather than to entertain advantages, for it is often very instructive to start with too simple a formula and correct it later on. Our first formula, as we shall later see, will have to be softened down somewhat by the results of more careful experimentation, both on frogs and birds, and by those of the most recent observation on dogs, monkeys, and man. But it will put us from the outset in clear possession of some fundamental notions and distinctions which we could otherwise not gain so well and none of which the latter more completed view will overturn. If then we reduce the frog's nervous system to the spinal cord alone by making a section belong oh, excuse me behind the base of the skull between the spinal cord and the medulla oblongata excuse me i wanted to tell you what the medulla oblongata was because i think that's actually important or it's an important part of this podcast and the medulla oblongata is the bottom most part of your brain its location means it's where your brain and spinal cord pretty much connect, um, making it a key uh, conduit for nerve signals and from your body. It also helps control vital processes like your heartbeat, breathing, and blood pressure, thereby cutting off the brain from all connection with the rest of the body. The frog will still continue to live, but with a very peculiarly modified activity. It ceases to breathe or shallow. It lies flat on its belly and does not, like a normal frog, sit up on its forepaws, though its hind legs are kept as usual folded, folded against its body and immediately resume this position if drawn out. If thrown on its back, it lies there quietly without turning over like a normal frog, Locomotion and voice seem entirely abolished. If we suspend it by the nose the and irritate different portions of its skin by acid, it performs a set of remarkable defense movements calculated to wipe away the irritant. Thus, if the breast be touched, both forepaws will rub it vigorously. If we touch the outer side of the elbow and behind the hind foot of the same side will rise directly to the spot and wipe it. Wow. The back of the foot will rub the knee if that be attacked. Whilst if the foot be cut away, the stump will make effectual movements. And then, in many frogs, a pause will come, as if for deliberation succeeded by a rapid passage of the opposite unmutilated foot to the acid-delated spot. Is that not wild, you guys? Wow. That's why I wanted to kind of tell you about this book. This one was a really interesting one. The most striking character of all these movements, after their teleological appropriateness, is their precision. They vary 
and sensitive frogs and with a proper amount of irritation so little as almost to resemble in their machine-like regularity the performances of a jumping jack whose legs must twitch whenever you pull the string the spinal cord of the frog thus contains arrangements of cells and fibers fitted to convert skin irritations into movements of defiance we may call the center for defensive movements in this animal we may indeed go farther than this by cutting the spinal cord in various places that it separate segments are independent mechanisms for appropriate activities of the head and of the arms and legs respectively and thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast and this has been such a great read i think william james is a fantastic writer psychologist physiologist thank you again for following me thank you for sharing me it's your boy lo jackson Thank you again, everybody. I do appreciate all the kindness and all the gestures I've gotten. June is Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month. And I wanted to share with you guys, after reading to you that little segment that um, William James wrote about the frog, you know, could you picture how they've come about, you know, doing studies like that? And doing all those recordings of what they did to animals to see what they would do if they severed this or did that. I only think that furthered us um, in the medical field and the psychological field better than anything. And I want to share with you, you know, a lot of famous people actually suffer from Alzheimer's, you know, because it's June. It's. Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, and I wanted you to know, Ronald Reagan, he was a president of the United States, you know, he, he suffered, um, the 40th president of the United States suffered from Alzheimer's, Glenn Campbell, Rita Hayworth, Harry Como, Charles Bronson, oh, uh, Seth, um, Seth Rogan, yeah, Seth Rogan's, um, mother-in-law suffers from Alzheimer's, uh, Charlton Heston, Norman Rockwell, Sugar Ray Robinson, Rosa Parks, you know, Rosa Parks, you know, she was a pioneer of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, you know, few knew it, but she dealt with Alzheimer's as well, um, Tony Bennett, Tony Bennett, uh, he actually has Alzheimer's, he's still alive, Casey Kasem, Margaret Thatcher, James Stewart, you know, it's a wonderful life. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. <laughs> and thank you guys for listening. And hopefully you enjoyed um, the book I just shared with you. I feel I feel that um, this author this month he really he really hits home with some of his writings. If you read any of his books, you know, because I mean, the principles of psychology. This has been one of the most interesting reads, but I can connect the dots and I can tell why, you know, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were so um, into William James's work is because they had never done the physical part of the psychology that they needed to do. And he did it for them. So it furthered their knowledge of the human body and response systems. And I thought that that was kind of cool, so I wanted to share that with you. And hopefully, you enjoy. You've been enjoying William James, and I'm glad I started including like you know certain things of that month because I feel it's important to know about Alzheimer's. And I'm, I'm glad I shared that um, this month. Um, I want to share a few more things about Alzheimer's before I cut off. But critical elements of leading Alzheimer's study, possibly fraudulent. So there's a lot of fraudulent data out there about Alzheimer's. Um, and these are only from trusted sites that I got some of this stuff. So, and I, and I do trust these places because I check in regular, regularly and 
they seem to always check out, because I do go through and read some of their stuff, and then I try to fact check some of it too to make sure it's not just bogus stuff. Like that nose picking one that nose picking could increase the risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. Is that not terrifying? Don't be out there picking your boogers. <laughs> um, early menopause and late hormone therapy linked to increased Alzheimer's risk in women. That's something to actually think about and know for all my women listeners out there. And thank you all for listening. I do appreciate you so much. Um, genetic changes differed, increased in people with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, temporary salt crystals may provide a permanent solution to Alzheimer's. I could, you know, these are just little uh, reads. You know, Alzheimer's disease is the leading cause of dementia worldwide and a major cause of disability. The human brain is comprised of around 86 billion neurons, roughly as many grains of sand as in a large dump truck. These neurons juggle electrochemical information as signals among the brain muscles and organs to orchestrate the symphony of life and survival to self-awareness. Alzheimer's disease disrupts this complex neural network, causing frictional disabilities and cell death. As yet, uncurable available treatments are symptomatic, supportive, and a breakthrough in understanding its pathologists uh, may brighten the prospects of medication, diagnosis, and prevention of Alzheimer's. And I think that's awesome, you know? Um, thank you guys for listening, and hopefully you have enjoyed some of the stuff that I've shared with you about Alzheimer's this month. If not, shoot me an email, tell me I'm terrible. Tell me I'm a horrible reader, which I already know I am. <laughs> Don't hate, playa. It's Lo Jackson. Come on. A decade-long study on people ages 46 to 77 found that among those with a family history of Alzheimer's disease, daily consumption of cheese and wine was associated with significant higher scores on tests measuring abstract reasoning and problem-solving. Kind of wild. Thank you guys for listening, and thank you for sharing me, and thank you for following me. Till next time, this is your boy Lowe.